Just a couple of days ago, a finance executive received a strange email from the CFO of this multinational company, and the CFO was asking for this individual to wire money to a, an account that he didn't recognize. And it seemed strange and seemed like some type of spam or some type of you know, tactic to kind of extort money from this company. Uh, but then there was, at the bottom of the email, an invitation to join a video conference to confirm said transaction. And so this person gets on the video conference, and there's several people on the conference, many of whom this person has worked with in a direct capacity. And so through the course of the conversation, this person starts to develop confidence that this is, in fact, legitimate. And the CFO there across the video conference gives, again, the order to wire this money. And so this person carries through with the order uh, and then reaches out to headquarters just to say, hey, here's what happened. This seemed a little strange. Come to find out that it was, in fact, an attempt to extort money from this multinational corporation. And in fact, the video conference, uh, there was only one individual who was real on the video conference. Every other individual that this person saw on a screen was a deep fake. Now, if you're like, what does this mean? Are we about to talk about conspiracies this morning? I'm so excited. Uh, we're not. We're not, even though I really would love to. Um, uh, that's coffee during the week. Um, but what happened in this particular instance is that uh, image and likeness was used to create an artificial video of each of these different individuals. And then scripts were created and programmed into this video to create the appearance that this was a legitimate conversation happening with people that this individual worked with. And then, of course, the $25 million was wired and stolen. We are living in a strange time where we are not able to discern what is true and what is false. And in fact, we are probably months, years away from you being able to experience in any particular moment someone, whether it's on a screen or whether it's the illusion through a hologram of someone standing before you having a long conversation like this and all of it be artificially generated. Strange times. Uh, our brains don't have the ability to catch up with the rate of development that te technology is undergoing. But... This idea of how we can spot the real from the fake has been something that humanity has struggled with from the beginning. And in the passage that we're going to look at today in the Gospel of Luke, this is exactly what we see happening. It's a conversation between Jesus and the devil. And it's all around this idea of what is real, what is fake, what is true, and what is a lie. And so if you have your scripture journals with you this morning, we're going to be in the fourth chapter in the Gospel of Luke. This is page 30 in your scripture journal, chapter 4 in the Gospel of Luke. Who brought your scripture journals back again? Okay. Okay, attrition. We're starting to see some decline in scripture journals. Bring them back next week, please, and thank you. This is for our engagement, for our benefit. This is where, so you can write notes in the margin, circle things, make a grocery list, whatever you do in the side page of your scripture journal. But here we go. This is chapter four of Luke's gospel, 
in verse one. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, the passage that we're going to look at starts in these opening verses. But so does what's typically companioned in the season of Lent. It's a period of 40 days of fasting, of self-denial, of confession and penance, of doing good deeds that mirrors Jesus' time in the wilderness. But here's where I think we make the mistake in Lent, and here's why I want to talk about this this morning, is because uh, for all of the benefits of small acts of self-denial, the chocolate that you vow not to eat for the next 39 days, the extra glass of wine, or the, the refrain from the use of social media, whatever it may be that you've chosen to give up, I'm not penalizing you for doing it that way. What I think is happening here in Jesus' life, and what I think Jesus models for us is something far more powerful than a little extra willpower to give up chocolate or caffeine or whatever insert your slight addiction of choices. What Jesus models and what Jesus is confronted with is something that wrecks lives. It breaks families and relationships apart. And it leads to the destruction of our souls. And this isn't pastoral hyperbole. The lies that we'll see the devil use against Jesus are the same lies that we fall into temptation with the same lies that we get caught up in, the same lies that we fail to recognize as lies. It's like the video conference with the executive. It seems so real, surely we can trust it. And we do, to disastrous effect. And so, maybe with a slightly different lens, let's walk through this story in the Gospel of Luke. So when Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, looking at the story of Jesus going toe-to-toe with the devil, in the 4th century, there was a man who was an early church father, one of the preeminent thinkers of his time. His name was Evagrius of Pontus. And what Evagrius decided to do was spending a life trying to write and lead the church, but being conflicted by his own temptations and vices and addictions. He fled to the desert where he decided that he was going to spend as long as it took going toe-to-toe with the devil and the demons that would manifest in his life, trying to tempt him and persuade him to stray. And what he did was he began to create a journal. And day after day, he would write down all of the lies that were presented to him by the devil. All of the temptations, all of the whispers, all of the ways that he recognized that there were starting to be these murmurings of how he should or could live differently than the way that God had called him to. Now, if you're one of these people that's a little superstitious of some of the mumbo-jumbo devil talk, just know that uh, I don't think that what we're talking about here is a guy in a red outfit with a pitchfork, you know, who's 
tempting Garth Brooks to you know, have a guitar battle if you've seen that SNL skit. This isn't what we're talking about. But I do think that there is something clearly at work in our world that tries to pull us away from following God. We don't need to personify it any more than that, but I don't think that the writers of the New Testament were just creating some, um, some bad guy that needed to do cosmic war with Jesus to make the story sound better. There are clearly things in our lives, in our world, that pull people towards and pull systems towards sin and oppression and injustice and evil. And if we can understand where it comes from and how it begins, the better we can resist the lies. So Evagrius finds himself in the middle of the wilderness making this journal. And he is creating this index of all of the different types of lies. And from that, he categorizes all of these lies into eight categories that he names as eight specific demons. This is where originally the seven deadly sins come from. Evagoras' kind of catalog of all of the different categories of lies that we are told in our life. And in connection to these lies, he wrote specific scriptural references to do battle with them, to combat them, to prove their falsehood. Now, this is what Evagrius had to say about this. He says, for the entire struggle will take place through the thoughts that approach us from each of these eight demons. The entire struggle will take place through the thoughts that approach us. Now, this may not be how you've thought of temptation before, how you thought about how perhaps the devil is at work in the world, but Evagrius, and as we'll see, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament are convinced that the primary scheme and mechanism of the devil is through our thoughts, through lies that try to persuade and dissuade us to trust God, to trust the way that we have been called to live and to take a different route and a different approach. Now, there are three types of lies, three categories around which the devil crafts his lies. And I want to name these, and then you will see these through this story. So here are the three lies the devil tells. The devil tells lies about who God is. The devil tells lies about who we are. And then the devil tells lies about how to be happy. Now, you can insert that word happy for how to live a fulfilled life, how to live a meaningful life, how to live a good life, how to live the best life. But it's around the idea of how we direct our efforts and energies in this life that lead us to a place of peace and contentment, satisfaction, joy. These are the three categories around which the devil tells his lies. So with that framework in mind, let's look at the three lies that the devil tells Jesus. So picking up in verse three, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, immediately, look at what the devil is doing. He begins to plant a seed of doubt. He begins to challenge the validity of Jesus' identity as the son of God. 
We are just, if you read through this chronologically, which I hope you're doing with us through the season of Lent, what you will find happens just before this passage of Jesus being led into the wilderness and being tempted by the devil is Jesus is baptized and then a voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so directly planting a seed of doubt and uncertainty, the devil says, if... I mean, if, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Because the devil recognized Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. He's extremely hungry at this point. And what the lie is here in this moment is God's not actually trustworthy to supply all of your needs. If you're actually the son of God, then you can take matters into your own hands. God's not actually a reliable source of all that you need in this life. It's up to you to do it on your own. Now, how many of us have heard this lie and this whisper in our own life? This is the original lie that's whispered to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, can you actually trust God? No, if you eat that apple, you won't die. In fact, God's holding out on you. You'll gain the same knowledge as God, knowing the difference between good and evil. This is the way that the devil begins to work in our thoughts with these lies. I can't trust that in my relationship and identity with God that all of the love that I need in this life will be provided. What if I... What if I probably need to go make sure that I surround myself with people who I can guarantee will love me, independent of what that means on my behalf of how I need to work to make sure that they give me the attention and the affection that I long for. That's what's going to satisfy my heart. That's what's going to make everything in my life better is if I spend my energies pursuing relationships or friendships or social status or some type of social approval so that I, that I can be okay. I can't. God's not trustworthy. I've got to do that myself. You see, the devil's so good at these lies as they manifest in our thoughts is we don't connect the two statements together. We feel the need and the desire, but we don't recognize that it is because there's a lack of trust on the other side of it. If we feel like life is up to us, that we have to make it, that we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and that anything good in this life is going to come at the result of our hands, implicit in that belief statement and in that thought is the connection that it's because we can't actually trust God to do it. It's just one of the ways that the devil begins to lie to us through the form of thoughts. And so Jesus answers him. In response to this lie, this is what Jesus says. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, in this particular instance, and what we'll see over the next two interactions between the devil and Jesus, is Jesus quotes scripture back at the devil. But not just any scripture. What I think is so fascinating about the scripture that Jesus chooses is the scripture is connected to this exact same situation from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is an account of the people of Israel navigating the wilderness for how many years? 
40. Oh, how long was Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. Coincidence. Nope. There are three specific issues that the people of Israel wrestled with in the wilderness. Can we trust God to provide all of our needs? Which is where this scripture that Jesus quotes comes from. Out of Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then as we'll see as we go on into the other two interactions between Jesus and the devil, the devil begins to whisper a lie in the form of a thought that the people of Israel wrestled with years and years ago. Now here's the difference in what we'll see at the end of the story. Jesus is successful in navigating these temptations. He's successful in identifying them as lies. The people of Israel failed this test. But Jesus shows us the better way. And so, let's keep reading. In verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Everything that you could ever want. All that you need to be happy. The fulfillment of your calling and destiny, Jesus, I'll give to you. You don't have to endure the suffering and the cross, the death. You don't have to go through any of that painful stuff. There is a shortcut to getting everything that you want in life, to becoming exactly it is who God called you to be. I can give it to you. All you have to do is worship me. The promise of fame and glory. To get what was going to be Jesus's anyway, faster. This is another lie. Or devil be- the devil begins to corrupt our thoughts. Think about all the ways that we desire good things in life. And all of the times we have heard stories about people who wanted to shortcut the process and ended up blowing up their lives in the pro- in- in result of the choice that they made. They want to be successful with their business. They're not willing to wait to do it slowly, methodically, wisely. So they cheat and cut corners. And what happens? They end up getting caught. They end up blowing up their company, hurting hundreds or thousands of people in the process, finding themselves in jail or some type of legal battle. Why? Because they believe that shortcuts are real and they can have everything they want just now. It's hard to trust God. And to wait, to wonder, will it happen? When might it happen? And what that means if it doesn't happen? Well, let's just take matters into our own hands. Let's just speed up the process. Let's just do it on our own timetable. In response to this lie, Jesus says in verse 8, And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, And him only shall you serve. Again, this comes from the story of the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6. This 
continual push and pull, this struggle of we want to worship God, but these idols might help us get what we want, so we worship them instead. Now, I know for most of us, we don't have little gold statues on our mantle. But there are other things that we worship instead of God that we think will help us get what we actually want. A faster way than by listening and following God's example. Whether it's through workaholism or some unrealistic perfection and beauty standards or some amount of relationship we can have exactly what it is that we think will make us happy. We can't trust God to get it. It's up to us. And so these things can get us there faster. If I can just earn enough money, then I'll have all of the security, security that I need and I can finally have peace in my life. Just the idol of, of wealth. If we can get our kids into the right school, then they can have the, the right opportunities at the next level, and then that will lead to the right opportunities at the next level, and then our, child, our children will be safe. They'll have a great life. We can guarantee a perfect life for our kids if we can just get them into all of the right schools. Come on now. I know why we want that to be true. But we're trying to look to something to provide us with the security that it's not capable of providing. We're believing these thoughts that we don't recognize as lies. Because, I mean, the devil's no dummy. The best lies are the ones that you don't realize are lies. The best lies are the ones that are built on a whole lot of truth. Let's take the school example that I just used. School matters. The types of schools that your kids go to do have an impact on their life. The grades that they make in those schools do correlate to opportunities at the next level and the next level. All of that is true. All of that's true. So should you try to put your kids into great schools? Yeah. Should you encourage your kids to do well in those schools? Yeah. But is it a guarantee? No. We all know people who have made horrible mistakes out of their life who went to great schools and people who have had wonderfully, like, beautiful lives who were publicly educated. We're trying to believe something can do something for us that it is not capable to do because it's not God. This is what the devil does. And if we don't name it, and we don't speak out against it, we're going to believe it. And then the third and final one, verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then the devil gets wise, and he decides to quote Scripture back to Jesus. He starts quoting out of context Psalm 91. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus once again responds to him. Out of Deuteronomy, out of the history of the people of Israel who struggled to recognize these temptations, these lies that present themselves, struggled to trust God fully. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God 
to the test. We do this in our lives when we make these conclusive if-then statements about God. If God really loved me, then God would fill in the blank. If God was actually real, then God would fill in the blank. We create our own tests to which we wait to see if God will pass. That proves to us God's existence, God's sovereignty, God's goodness and mercy and love. Whether it's around the, the health of a loved one or the success of adventure or a relationship, whatever it may be. We create these opportunities that say, okay, God, I'm going to do this. And if this doesn't work out, then that tells me everything I need to know about you. Jesus is wiser than that. He says, no, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then finally in verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Not gone forever, not gone for good, just until the next opportune time. Now, some of this can feel like a little bit of hocus pocus. But here's what we know from cutting edge neuroscience. Because of the plasticity of our brains, they have the ability to mold and to shape, to conform, to learn, to grow, to change. And one of the primary ways that our brains are formed and shaped is through neural pathways that are created by the thoughts that we think. So for example, if you grew up in a home where love was scarce and you developed the self-belief that I'm not lovable and you continue to think this thought, this lie over and over and over, that I'm not lovable, that I'm not lovable, that I'm not lovable, and you look for evidence to confirm your bias, over time, the more that you think the thought, the more that you come to believe the lie. And as you believe the lie, you begin to live out the lies in your life. What does that mean to live as someone who is unlovable? How does that impact your relationships? How does that impact your faith in God? How does that impact all of the day-to-day decisions that you make? You see, these things start as little thoughts, but then they build and they grow and they end up forming and shaping our lives. These thoughts become beliefs. These beliefs become actions. These actions become habits. These habits become our character. This is how the devil gets us. He doesn't pull up in a primer colored van with a promise of a puppy on the other side. That's not how it works. We're smarter than that, most of us. But it starts as this little seed of doubt, this little nagging thought. The only way that my life's going to be okay is if I fill in the blank. These statements that we say to ourselves over and over again, the thoughts that we think over and over again. This is why the media that we consume matters. Whether it's news, whether it's social media, whether it's music, all of these contain messages that exist as thoughts most of them containing lies about who God is, about who we are, and about how to be happy. 
All it takes is two minutes on social media. One scroll and you realize that everybody's happier than you are. Everybody has a better body and a better life than you do. And you're the only one who lives and looks the way that you do. That is a lie from the pit of hell. But it's reinforced every time we scroll. Everyone else is in a relationship but me. Everyone else is happy because they're in a relationship. I'm the only one who's not in a relationship. I'm the only one who's not going to get asked out. I'm the only one who's going to end up alone. Come on. We see how this happens, but it starts is this small little thought. That's a lie. Everyone else's career is advancing. I'm the only one that seems to be stuck in middle management. We're not going to have what we need to be happy. Our kids aren't going to be able to go to the schools that we want them to if we don't live on a certain street or in a certain zip code to have access to certain things. We're going to live this second-tier life. And so we spend and try to buy our way and max out credit cards, ignore margin and limits in our life because we're trying to do what we don't trust God to do for us because we have bought into these lies. May it not be so with us, church. May we begin to identify and to recognize the lies that the devil whispers to us, the thoughts that we hold that aren't consistent with what Scripture says about who God is, who he has created us to be, and the life that he is inviting us to live. The conclusions that we can draw from this, from these three lies that the devil tells us, is throughout our lives, he will begin to pick at us and to plant seeds of doubt. If, if, what if, you may be the only, all of these little seeds that cause us to doubt these things. And so by looking at Jesus's life, there are two very clear practices, two very clear ways that we can begin to safeguard ourselves from these lies. Silence and solitude, there it is again. We did four weeks on this because it is so central to how we create space to hear God's voice and to be reminded of who God is, who we are, and what life God is calling us to. And the other is scripture. Jesus, in every instance with the devil, quotes scripture back. The only way that we can use scripture to our defense to combat the lies that the devil tells is if we know it. And the only way to know it is to read it. This is why we tried to create practices like this reading plan that we're in during the season of Lent. If you haven't started with us, there's plenty of time to catch up. Learning about the life of Jesus and the life that he calls us to in his example is how we can begin to create the counter-narrative the truth that overwhelms the lies that the devil shares. Evagrius articulates it this way, and then we'll close. In the time of struggle, when the demons make war against us and hurl their arrows at us, let us answer them from the holy scriptures, lest the unclean thoughts persist in us, enslave the soul through the sin of actual deeds, and so defile and plunge it into the death 
brought by sin. Scripture is the way that we combat the lies. But do you see the process that Evagrius names? Unclean thoughts. They enslave the soul through action, actual deeds, and then plunge it into the death brought on by those patterns of habit and behavior. Friends, there's a way that we can do battle against the lies in our lives. And it is through a regular practice of silence and solitude with God and scripture reading. We do not have to give in. We do not have to be persuaded. And we do not have to be fooled. We can know who God is. We can know who God has created us to be. And we can trust in the life that he presents to us. Friends, let me pray for us that this may be so. And then we'll invite the band to come and sing one last song. Let's pray. Gracious God, it's this morning that we come to you asking for you to shine the truth into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives. God, take hold of all of the thoughts. Render them captive to your truth and to your goodness and to your love. God, we love you. Grateful for the way that you love us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.